Welcome to our discussion segment on Ivan the Terrible. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Let's get started. Hey, Joe, how's it going? It's going well. I understand that there was a, a slight mistake that you wanted to address before we get started here. I would like to address this. Ladies and gentlemen of our wonderful audience, I apologize for not getting a Thursday Thoughts uh, posted on Thursday of this past week. That was on me. I have several, but did not get a chance to record it. Should have taken advantage of our recording time when it was available. So moving forward, we will do our very best, barring any unforeseen circumstances to make sure that we're sticking to the schedule. These are uh, not our primary uh, podcasts, but uh, they are still important. And we've got a lot of great feedback from you all on them. So my bad. Sorry about that. Joe, I got a text message from a family member asking where the Thursday thought was. She was inconsolable. No way. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure some of you were. And, and have I no- was inconsolable. I, I, was, I was heartbroken when Joe texted me on Wednesday night. It was like, we're not going to do a Thursday thought. No. Uh, have no fear. They'll be back. Hope is on the way. They will be back. So my first question shouldn't surprise you. I was. Why did I pick this topic? No, no, oh, no, no, okay. no, no, no. My, my first question is, or has to do with how you ended the podcast. Oh, okay. Because the way that I, after hearing it several times, the way that I heard it was, your question was not linked to was what Ivan did or his many actions, were they evil? No, not at all. It was specific to did his mental state, his possible mental impairment contribute to his bad choices and evil choices? Yes. So why did you end the podcast like that? Because it's a question that I don't necessarily have an answer for. Not being a medical professional or a mental health professional, I wasn't really sure how else to end it other than kind of the standard way this season, which is like, here are the the markers of evil. But I thought it was much more interesting to kind of leave it on a question and let our audience kind of think about it and decide for themselves. Because I know there are a variety of answers to that. Some people say that it doesn't matter your mental state. It doesn't matter what's going on in your personal life or in your medical life. When you do something evil, you are and you should be held responsible. And other people say, no, this is absolutely, whether it's historic mental illness or a rash of mental illness that we're seeing right now, when people who are mentally ill do evil things, it's not necessarily their fault. And I saw kind of a reflection in the historical debate around Ivan the Terrible, as you see with evil events that happen in this world today. So I thought I would kind of leave it to the audience. How would that have changed history, let's say people found out that he was, during the time when he was alive, Mm -hmm. that he had a mental illness. Would that have changed anything? And it's not a what if. I'm just trying to understand, from the perspective of the people in his country Mm -hmm. that he ruled over, would that have changed anybody's perception? Would that have caused an uprising? Would that have done anything to cause people to not just question his rule, but try and put a stop to it? I don't think it would have caused them to question his rule or try to put a stop to it. No, I don't think there would have been a rebellion or anything like that. I do think it might have encouraged people within the inner circle, within his court or within his family, to maybe take him aside and say, hey, let's, let's find a way to get you well so that you're not feeling all of this paranoia and all this other stuff that's being fed by his second wife, which leads to the creation of the, of the opportunity and all the other instruments of torture that he inflicted on his people. But- it's almost a what if. I mean, no one can know. But I do think that, the say, the last 10 years of his rule would have been very different. Yeah. Because that's when it got really, really bad in Russia. So let's take a step back. When you read Russian stories, whether it be a novel or any piece of history, mm-hmm. it's usually pretty dark. It is. Why throughout the ages in that country has, I don't want to say this particular type of behavior been tolerated, but behavior like it. Mm-hmm. It seems like 
it's on this repetitive cycle of just darkness. It yeah. seems very, very bad. Yeah. Why is that? So first thing. And the second thing is, at a certain point, did people try to change the course of history for their country to change this trend? I think part of the reason is because Russia is so big, it's virtually ungovernable. Absent modern technology, you can't govern a country like Russia unless you have a very, very, very firm hand. And we see that from the Ruriks through to the Romanovs, and then obviously to the communist period. It's, it's, it's the exact same thing. You do have moments of liberalization, thinking specifically of Tsar Alexander II, who was, came to power, I believe, during the Crimean War and ruled until, I think, the late 1880s. And he was the one who kind of liberalized Russia really for the first time, freed the serfs, introduced some industrial reforms, tried to make life better, and extreme pan-Slavist nationalists threw a bomb at him and blew him up. And his son, Alexander III, said, okay, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm going to become the most oppressive ruler that Russia has ever seen. So he until, punished everybody yes, for what they did. absolutely. Up until the Soviet period. He was the worst one they'd ever seen and up until Stalin. And then I think the other part of it is, this is a generalization, but it seems to me, in your question, is a correct assumption that the Russian people are willing to tolerate That's the a great question. deal of oppression. Consistently. Yeah. Part of that is due to what we've talked about a couple of times here on this podcast in, in past episodes, Russia's just absolutely vicious xenophobia, distrust of any kind of outsiders, whether it's people who we would historically say are Russian, for example, Russian Jews or white Russians or even Ukrainians. There's a lot of debate over the, the different ethnic makeup of Russia versus Ukraine. I don't want to get into that because that gets kind of touchy. But all the way out to, you know, they absolutely fear and detest the Germans. They despise the Poles, Chinese, Mongols, whoever it is. If a Russian leader is saying, I will protect you from these potential invaders, I will protect you from these outsiders, they're willing to do whatever that leader says. For Russia, it's about security above all else. So that, that priority of security is passed down from generation to generation. It seems, yeah. I mean, they're accepting it right now. Yeah, they are. They wow. live under a modest tyranny by Russian standards, but it is still, I mean, there's, there's no genuine democracy in Russia today. It seems like when democracy was attempted, it was a corrupt form as well. I mean, it, it was, so, so, yeah. so end, end of the Cold War, yeah. you know, a lot of mobsters took over. Well, yes, but you have to look at what was happening in that country in the, uh, in the early 90s. And, and I don't want to go into too much detail on this because that's three, four centuries after what we're talking about. But Russia had no experience with democratic government. And it's fascinating. If you look at their interactions with the West at this time, they asked Western countries for help, for economic help, for political help. There are suggestions that Vladimir Putin made in his interview that was published a couple of weeks ago that, that they tried to join NATO and things like that. I don't know if that was the case, but I do know the Russians asked the West for help in like, teach us how to govern ourselves because we don't know how to do it. And this historic anti-Russian sentiment that we see in the West, especially in the United States after 50 years of the Cold War, the United States said, no, we're not interested. Bush 41 and Clinton both said, we're not prepared to offer you any kind of real genuine assistance in managing this transition from a Soviet collective tyranny to a democracy. And what was the result? The oligarchs took over. 
the Russian mafia took over, and ultimately Vladimir Putin took over. Oh. And now Russia is back to its old tricks. Yeah. It's, re- it's really unfortunate that yeah, some scary. of this stuff today could have been stopped. Yeah. We tend to see that pattern in history, don't we? Yeah, we do. That's true. So to Ivan the Terrible, really interested in his reform period mm-hmm. because it seemed like he did attempt to change the way of life for his people he did. in the beginning. He did. He made some really, really progressive reforms set like decades or even centuries ahead of the other European states. What was his motivation for doing that? I know in the podcast you said it was, you hinted at it was his wife, but it, it couldn't have just been one influence because he was having, I mean, he came from a childhood that where he saw effects mm-hmm. of, of some good things. So I think that those seeds were already planted. So was it a combination of the two? Was it him seeing some reforms working and he wanted to do more? Like what influenced him to enact all of these changes? I think a lot of it came from the advisors he had around him. He made it very clear when he was crowned, he's not going to be, as I said in the podcast, manipulated or governed by anyone else, but he will listen. He listened to his wife, his first wife. He listened to the ministers around him. And I think... I remember reading, I'm not 100% sure about this, but my, my understanding is a lot of the people involved in the government of Moscow, which is at, at the time is a separate country from Novgorod, it's later captured or merges with Moscow, but they look at the Novgorod Republic and they say, ooh, okay, that's a very progressive, open, free, not necessarily democratic, but a modern country for that time. Let's try and do some of that. And so they brought the idea to the czar and the czar said, okay, yeah, let's do that. I think it was the feudal council that particularly came from Novgorod. So he was willing to listen to his advisors and his ministers and the churchmen who were around him at that time. So when he, and I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but when he went, when he went bad, hmm. his advisory council, I assume, changed, correct? Or he well, removed I, them? He, he just stopped listening to them. Okay. His, the paranoia, the innate paranoia in the minds of a lot of Russian leaders, I won't say all of them, but a lot of them, combined with the influence of his second wife and then combined with the reversals in the Livonian War, those three things spun him into an almost Stalin-esque level of paranoia. And so he just stopped listening to anyone. Yeah, because th- there's that trend again. Yeah. Like paranoia oh, yeah. and so interesting. Yeah. How did he centralize the... Russian state, you were saying earlier how large it is and mm-hmm. how impossible it is, not impossible, but how challenging it is to govern. What were his methods to centralize it so he could not just start to gain control to enact such reforms, but keep those reforms going and allow them to spread? Well, most of the reforms were early in his rule before the, the period of expansion. So Russia, the portion of Russia that he controls, the Moscow principality, is, I mean, it's large by modern standards, but in comparison to to the vast space of Russia, it's not that large. And so he's able to implement those forms really at, at more of what we would consider a local level. Okay. And by the time Russia is expanding and waging all of these wars going every direction, that's when he's getting a little bit more. He's not to his full paranoia. He's not to his full Ivan the Terrible levels, but he's, he's starting to be more interested in military affairs than in domestic and civil government. Was there an opportunity for him to expand further or due to the size of Russia, being local was his only choice? Well, I mean, he started to expand as quickly as he could, but it's very different from like the rest of mainland Europe where you take, for example, the Holy Roman Empire, which was a fairly large organization, or the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. If you go in any direction from one of their major cities, you go, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles, you're going to start to reach 
at least the outskirts of another city. Russia at this time, you had to go like, I think, four or 500 miles from Moscow to reach any other city that was even okay. close to that size. Okay, wow. And when you have to provision an army with horses and carts and people carrying stuff on their backs, your, your military range is much diminished. It would seem like the opportunity cost for doing so would be much higher to it enforce was. a reform. It was. Know? But once they started their expansion, he would build these enormous fortresses that would be storehouses largely for the army so that they could then, they don't have to rely on Moscow and it supplies supply from there. Chain. Yeah, okay. basically he's building a supply chain. And that's what allowed him to go as far south as, uh, as Astrakhan, which is, I think it's about 14, 1,500 miles, mm. which is pretty impressive. Yeah. And I mean, he was the first to send people across the Urals, and that's a couple thousand miles across. And there's giant mountains in the way. They were able to get through there, build a fortress on the other side of the Urals. I think it was what is today the city or town of Tobolsk, and start Russia's colonization of Siberia. Mm. When you read about Ivan the Terrible, in the podcast, you talked about major events. Mm -hmm. you know, we have a short-form podcast. Yes. You can't go into extreme detail. Yeah. So opportunity here to do so. What were some of the small things that you have read that would indicate changes in his behavior that would signal these larger, terrible actions mm -hmm. he took? What were some of those things at the very beginning that, you know, if we were in a room with this guy, it'd be like, red flag. You know, it's just it's kind of like, yeah. what were those? And did anybody try and confront them? And what was the result? The biggest one was in his early life, after the death of his father, and I believe his mother was still there when he was still just a, just a prince. When he is meeting with his tutors during the day, at night, he's torturing small animals. And he oh, wow. loved torturing small animals. So right there, you have the beginnings. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Of... And, when, and what you said, a red flag, the beginnings of a, of a twisted mind. That's a red bomb. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So people saw him doing this, or they saw well, the remains of the animals? So the, they saw remains, yes, and there, there were enough of them that, okay, yeah, one or two, they might have been killed by a predator or something like that. But it seems like there are a whole bunch of corpses right after Prince Ivan is going through, and they started to put things together. Some historians say those are inventions by later anti-Rurik and anti-Ivan propagandists. It's possible, but the writings that have survived indicate that he was a tortured mind from a very young age. And again, not to excuse it, but we can understand it. Losing your father at such a young age, then losing your mother, knowing that your mother was probably poisoned by a rival family, that's going to do some pretty serious damage to any mind, no matter how stable. The opportunity to manifest your anger in some way towards things that can't hurt you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. As far as like people trying to confront him, I don't know that anyone did because you have to understand that in Moscow at that time, the prince's rule is absolute. You don't ever challenge him on something that you think that he is doing, you know, that's wrong. Can you talk about that for a minute? How does that work? When, when you think about when you said the prince's rule is absolute, you know, my American mind doesn't understand <laughs> that and cannot comprehend yeah. such a thing. But from the perspective of his people, especially those around him every day, mm -hmm. that was an accepted truth. Was it a divine appointment? Was it, what was the justification for the allowance? Because it, I, I just go back to, you see it as absolute, have a moral conviction, or some did, I'm sure, that torturing small animals is wrong. This is a bad sign. And then you cover that by saying his rule is absolute. Why and how does that work? Ivan lived at a juncture of two 
huge trends in Russia. The first is the continuing growth and, and eventual supremacy of the Russian Orthodox Church, which sees itself as, like all churches, you know, the expression of God's will on this earth. And the head of the Russian church, the patriarch of Moscow, is also a very, very close friend to the czar. And they believe that, you know, the verse in Romans and elsewhere in the New Testament that says God ordains leaders means divine right of kings, means that or divine right of czars in this case, that the czar is given a heavenly mandate to rule in whatever manner he chooses. Add to that, just as Ivan is coming to the throne, you get the arrival of some of the first ideas that come out of the Renaissance. Specifically, we know that one of the first non-Russian books that Ivan read was Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince, which says anything that you do as a prince or as a king, as a ruler of any kind, that secures your power, your personal authority in whatever state you're ruling, whether it's a small central German principality or the vast czardom of all Russia— is legal, is justified, and is right in the eyes of God. Machiavelli didn't believe in God. He was one of the early humanists. But he said, if you want to use a religious justification, look at the verses, look at the historic traditions of the divine right of kings, and then claim that for yourself. I have to secure my throne, which was given to me by God. Therefore, what I do is always, always justified. And no one can question it. Mm. And the, the power and no one the, did. And no one did. And the power and the centrality of the Tsar at the center of the Russian people's lives only increased all the way up to the revolution in 1917. Where does the term Tsar come from? That's a good question. It actually comes from the Latin word Caesar. What? Yeah. You didn't know that? <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Genu- genuinely, you didn't know that? No. Yeah, it, com- it comes from the Latin word Caesar. And it denotes that same medieval idea you know, the late Caesars kind of fused church and state under Constantine first and then going forward. And Ivan was steeped in his early education in the stories of Augustus and Julius Caesar. So he understood the importance of having kind of a mythos around him as the leader. And I I imagine he cultivated that with the Oprichnina and with other state institutions, even earlier, his throne room in Moscow from the time he was... 17, 18, had very imperial trappings. Okay. Yeah. Also, same thing about the German word Kaiser also comes from Caesar, like Kaiser Wilhelm from World War I. Yeah. yeah. There's your language lesson for the day. So if anybody asked these, these guys how often they thought about the Roman Empire, it's <laughs> <laughs> <was> pretty— <laughs> Every time every, I hear every my day, title. Every day of my <laughs> life, day, I think about the Roman Empire. Those toxic men. <laughs> well, some of them, yeah. Yeah. Was his reason for expansion— sane. And I only asked that because it was, as he descended into madness, mm-hmm. it seemed like most of his expansion started after that period when he really got- No, it actually started before. What were his motivations? And again, were they sane? <laughs> and were were they actually in the best interests of expansion for his people or yeah. for himself? So despite being a military historian, I tend to view war as generally speaking, if you're starting a war as, a, as not a sane act. Yeah. I mean, it's robbery at the national level. I see something in another country, I'm going to take it. That is not a morally justifiable act. Obviously, defensive war is something else, but that's, that's not what he was doing. Add to that 
some of his wars, especially in Astrakhan and against the Turks, those were crusades, which, again, we've talked about in the past. Are those morally justified? Are those sane? There's some questions around that. I think if you want to look at Russia's internal security and external security, the most justified, I'm not going to use the word sane, but the most justified conflicts that they launched were in, and this is going <laughs> to, if you take this out of context and people are going to get mad, were in the Ukraine against Crimea. Not today, back then, because the Crimean Peninsula, with its excellent geography and its historic ties to Turkey, represents a fundamental threat to Russia at that time. And so he wanted to get a hold of it. He didn't, but his successors would try again and again and again, all the way down to Putin. Uh, and then the Livonian War. Russia does need access to warm water ports if it's going to be a modern state at that time. Were they necessary? Could they have negotiated? Could they have found other ways to achieve the yeah, same There are such a thing as trade agreements. There are, there are, but again, that's a very modern viewpoint. Most leaders inside and outside of Russia at this time are going to be more interested in taking what they want rather than negotiating for it. Because in negotiation, you might have to give up something, some of your money or some of your possessions as a, uh, as a national leader. Far easier to just send off a whole bunch of conscript soldiers who you don't care about to fight in this war for you. Mm-hmm. That was the attitude of most leaders at the time. Is that sane? Yeah, I would leave that to you. You said in the podcast that other European powers really, I don't want to say didn't pay attention to Russia. They didn't know about a whole lot. Yeah, because it, it yeah. was so far away, mm -hmm. to your point earlier. When did they start paying attention? Was there a time when Ivan the Terrible, that name... Reach Not them. really. Okay. Not really. Only, only after his death. I mean, they were paying attention, as I said in the podcast, during the Age of Discovery, as the English are sending ships all around the world looking for a, a passage through North America or basically north along the north coast of Russia to try and get to China, to try and get to the Far East. That's when they first made contact uh, with the Russians at Archangel. And that's when they started to take care. At first, Russia is kind of just a, a curiosity. Like, this is an interesting country where they like, fight bears for fun and yeah. and they worship this this or they they're part of this kind of bizarre from a western european standpoint branch of christianity it's 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 a it's a unique place but it was under elizabeth I that we get the first major commercial contacts between a western or central european country and russia obviously eastern europe they've been in contact with the russians since the mongol invasion but it's not been constant russian contact it's been yeah. periodic Supposedly, Ivan IV, one of the eight marriages that he ultimately had, he was married more than twice. He divorced his second wife and was married, I think, six or five or six more times. Oh, wow. Depending on how you define a marriage, because a lot of those were concubines that lasted a few weeks. But supposedly, during his saner period, I think it was what would have been his second wife was Elizabeth I. There was a marriage proposal to the Queen of England, which would have been interesting. He was a little bit older than her. And most Englishmen were like, there is no way we are ever going to allow our virgin queen to marry this, like, barbarian from Russia. But that would have been an interesting kind of what-if of history. It's interesting, then, if the rest of Europe saw them that way, then the people who lived in Russia saw themselves that way. There was no world outside of their own. Because most Russians were serfs. Yeah, yeah. Their world is 200 feet out from the manor on which they were born and worked and lived and would die. So going back to Ivan's peculiar red flag, terrible behavior, what would they have it to compare to? Thinking about like- is Average this... Russians? What do, you, what do you mean have what to compare? It? So oh, his rule. His rule. They don't have anything else to compare no, it to. So going back to your comment about his rule is absolute mm -hmm. as prince, they would say, okay, well, this is just how rulers are. Is yeah, that- Basically. 
they would have noticed if they were old enough and lived during the time when the Oprichnina started its particular reign of terror, they would have noticed, okay, something has changed. But someone who lived through the, say, first half of Ivan's rather long reign, they would have seen a couple changes, maybe a feudal council that is making a few more decisions rather yeah. than everything coming from Moscow. But yeah, I mean, the, the average lifespan of Russians at that time was, was I think, in the like mid to late 40s. So unless you were very, very healthy, you probably did not live for his entire reign. I'm going to guess that the average Russian lifespan back then was not long. Russians are pretty healthy people. I think it was it was actually a little bit longer than the average oh, okay. Central and Western cool. European. Yeah. And, and I didn't mean that fewer, in a bad way. Yeah, it's yeah. just well, it's you have hard fewer, life. You have fewer political threats. Yeah. I mean, Russia's so big. It's not like, you know, someone from a neighboring town, you know, that's owned by another feudal lord is going to send their knights in. Russia is pretty healthy at this time, unlike today. So, John, I'm going to ask a question I don't usually ask when we're talking about something in history. But the way that you described in the podcast, his reign of terror. What did that inspire in the Russian people artistically? Was Were there any writings? I, I know that people wrote about what happened, obviously, but yeah. how did they express themselves? Because they didn't express themselves by stopping him. So yeah. what were the outlets and what was some evidence of his reign as a result of what he did? That's a really good question. I am not an expert on Russian artistic output. I'm trying to think if, as I was reading... I don't know that I saw anything that would have come from anyone outside of the church. Most okay. Russians do not have the leisure time to be able to be artists at this period in history. And very few Russians outside of the cities could read. I know that there were paintings or etchings. There were poems and songs and sermons that were all produced that praised the czar specifically for the massacre of Novgorod because he saw it and his sycophants saw it as him defending Russia against these rebel boyars and rebel churchmen. Wow. Yeah. Because again, this is early in his, in the Upper Chinina's reign of terror. So it only got worse from there. Yes. And the, I mean, some of the stuff that was done there, it's as bad and some of it is actually worse than what was done in the Inquisition, which we talked about at the beginning of this season. Yeah. It was pretty horrific stuff. How far did their reach extend? So speaking specifically about the secret police, going back to your comment earlier about how far everything is away, how local did they stay? How expansive were they? Well, they were, there were only, I think, about 6,000 of them, and they moved in groups. So they would go into a town. They would set up, again, like the Inquisition. And I, I have to imagine that there was some inspiration. I didn't find a direct link in my reading, but I would imagine, given how similar the Inquisition courts and the Opportunity courts worked, there had to be an, a, a relationship there. But they would go into a town, they would persecute, they would murder, they would torture, they would do what they did, and then they would leave. And usually, for the next generation, there was not a whole lot of anti-Tsarist sentiment, as everyone remembered how horrific it was. Mm. So their reach was, I mean, every corner of Russia was touched, but it wasn't all at the same time, like the later secret police structures, such as the Okhrana under the, lit, the last couple of czars, the third section before that, or the Cheka, the NKVD, KGB, the stuff that the Soviets did. I would imagine that the more they persecuted, murdered, tortured, the more brutal they got, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Because again, my American mind <laughs> thinks somebody do and just something. just a 21st century mind. Yeah, yeah, somebody do something about this. Yeah. And that's not, <laughs> but are you sure that we would do that today? You know, I don't know. Yeah. 
I've had that thought many times because it's easy, you know, hindsight to look back and say, I would have done something. But how many terrible things have have happened even in the last few years where people have been challenged to stand up to evil Mm -hmm. and they haven't. Yep. They haven't because they have just wanted to live their life and they think, if I just they have to take care of their families, they have to take care of their families. Yeah. If I just keep my head down, I'm going to be okay. Yeah, and it's, it'll 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 pass by. Yeah, this too shall pass. It makes you wonder what it would take. Yeah, for somebody to say, I cannot live like this anymore. That my everyday life that I am pursuing, my family, my dreams, my career, whatever that is, is now not possible because of the oppression that I'm experiencing. Yeah. I wonder what that is nowadays. I don't know. I don't either. But I wonder as well. Kind of a broad question for you. How do historians evaluate the overall impact of Ivan the Terrible? How did that change Russia? But more importantly, it doesn't seem like it changed anything in the world because at that time it was so isolated. Yeah, it it did not have much of a global or even a continental impact outside of Scandinavia and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Internally, obviously, his rule is seen through the lens of the later czars and the Soviets. So a lot of people see him as a precursor. In terms of the writings that survived the time of troubles, he was looked at until Mikhail Romanov was able to kind of stabilize the country as, wow, we miss him. We miss the era of strong leadership. His only surviving son, Fedor, was probably intellectually deficient and died childless. And then you've got the 20-odd years known as the Time of Troubles in which Russia basically suffers what amounts to a complete political and social collapse. I think a third of the population dies of famine. The Swedes and the Poles invade again. They actually occupy the Russian capital for nearly a decade. So people living through that who remembered Ivan, whose parents or grandparents remembered Ivan, would probably go, man, I wish we had that again. Then you get to the Romanovs, and the Romanovs look back on the Ruriks and all the early dynasties of Russian leaders as barbarian savages. The Romanovs are the most European of all the Russian rulers to that time, and they're the ones who want to bring Russia more closely into Europe. They're the ones who initiate the first major contacts with the Europeans, and Ivan is looked at as just this barbarian, half-Mongol, or that was the slander they used to describe him because he did have some Asiatic features. And we're never going back to that. And for a time, Russia did flourish. I mean, from, uh, I think it was Peter the Great to Catherine, they did pretty well for themselves. We did get a question from one of our audience members. Okay. In the instance of a ruler of a country who has a mental illness, it seems there needs to be checks and balances in place. Yeah, that's a very American, American approach. Ter- yeah, yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. However, in the case of this leader, if one stood up to him, he would have probably just killed him. Yes. Was there any recourse to Ivan the Terrible's rule? Could anyone have done anything? <sighs> Not really. I mean, basically, it's you try to escape it or you try to endure it. Some people did flee Russia. They went across the Urals to be colonists in Siberia voluntarily, which that tells you how bad it got in Russia that, no, living in Siberia sounds preferable to this. But most of the people, like we were just talking about, they just kind of kept their heads down and endured it. Because unless you were willing to step up and poison the czar or shoot the czar or stab the czar, there's really not much you can do. He's not going to listen to anyone but his wife. He may have murdered his own son, which shows the level of 
insanity. depravity yeah. that he is that he is under at this point. It's a great question. I don't think there was any any other recourse. The same audience member continues just just to say asking about treatments, mm-hmm. thinking about the types of treatments that were there any available treatments Did, for the uh, the temporal lobe disorder he may have had? Yeah, yeah, or was that even a consideration? Did people did people even question this man has brain problems? I don't think so. I I don't know the history of when we started to understand like how the brain worked, but I don't think that certainly with the medical technology of the day you couldn't like lobotomize the guy. There's no way he was going to survive something like that. And I don't know that they would have even considered that to be something they would even they would ever consider doing. I mean, at this right. point, European and especially Russian science is pretty primitive by our standards. So I, d- I doubt they were even thinking about treatment. I think it was just let's go past you know the door to his bedroom or the door to his chambers as quickly as we can, so we don't tick him off and have to encounter this madman towards okay. the end of his reign. John, in preparation for this podcast, I saw the painting. It's a pretty famous one of Ivan holding his dying son, the one that you talked about. The one by Repkin, yeah. yeah. Where he struck him in the side of the head. He's bleeding from his temple. And you see it's a very heartbreaking painting, kind of a still shot of him holding his dying son. And it seems like, again, just a painting. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Right, we don't know if it actually happened we don't, this way. Yeah, but mm-hmm. caused me to ask this, or it gave me the idea to ask this. When you read about Ivan the Terrible and that, possibly traumatic experience in his life and what happened afterward. Like the fact that he be, kind of became like a monk kind yeah. of in, in the palace where he didn't see a whole lot of people. When you've read about historical figures like him and others who have had this, this kind of experience where they're holding, possibly holding their dying child or something like that, I was hit by the possibility that this could have been a moment of clarity for mm. Ivan the Terrible. Did the evil that he perpetuated on others hit him in that moment. If what we see in the painting actually happened, it's certainly possible. Again, you you referenced correctly that he did, he does kind of withdraw from the day-to-day governing of the kingdom. I think if that scene is true, it probably did have an impact. It did wake him up at some point. And more broadly, I think I've always been fascinated by that particular painting of Ivan the Terrible, I remember seeing it for the first time when I took a Russian history class. My freshman year in college was actually only the second college-level history class I'd ever taken. And we went through so many stories of evil. This season, studying heroes last season, studying villains this season, has really driven home to me the idea that a lot of people don't understand or don't recognize evil until it touches their own lives. Ivan the Terrible what he potentially did to his son. And again, I, I want to emphasize, we don't know it. There are lots of interpretations. There are plenty of people who said, no, he was evil to the day he died. Maybe he was. But there are many, many stories of evil men and women across history seeing what they've done, seeing the personal impact, and making a change. And there are way too many examples of people not understanding evil until it touches them. And in many cases, it's too late. I think that painting and I think the story of Ivan the Terrible is a reminder to us that, one, as we've said many times, evil exists. Two, it needs to be confronted. Three, it needs to be recognized. And fourth, we need to do all of that before evil touches our own lives. Because in many cases, some of the most devastating losses that any person could ever endure could have been prevented had we, had they had a better understanding of the evil that was surrounding and gathering and approaching them. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of Ivan the Terrible. I'm Joe Parker. 
<laughs> sorry. Sorry. Pause I'm for effect. Pause for effect. No, kid, totally spaced it. <laughs> and I'm John Streeter. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. And you can help us make it even better by going to 15minutehistorypodcast.org and hitting the support button. Thank you, and see you all next week.